Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Kevin Milan. Kevin Milan, as Captain Milan, did his level best to defend the city of Magdeburg against hopeless odds in spring 1631. He managed to flee the city and live another day. This is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you and shout you out on the show as well, to thank you for your very generous support, then make sure you head on over to Patreon. More on that later, but for now, enjoy this latest episode of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 22 of the Thirty Years' War. I hope you're doing very well indeed in these difficult times. I myself am recording this literally the day before it comes out because it was my birthday last week and I kind of just, well, ate a load of caramel squares and did no work. But that's what turning 29 is all about, I feel. So a massive thanks to all of you for giving me the patience and the time to actually, like, relax every now and then, because it's very important. And also thanks to Anna, who's put up with me all these years, and actually made those aforementioned caramel squares. Long may they reign. But for now, we are looking at the Thirty Years' War, and it's nice to be back in the swing of things, just in time to talk about a, well, if you're a fan of Frederick, let's just say the story gets a bit depressing from here on in, but it's not any less interesting for that. Last time, we examined Frederick V, the Elector Palatine, and we saw him in the twilight of his reign, a very short reign, during the period of winter 1619 and spring 1620. Frederick embarked on his royal progress, he sought to wrest oaths and concessions from the subjects that had elected him, and he attempted to cash in on his allies' promises while he moved to secure his reign and his dynasty's hold over the Bohemian crown. While he engaged in these important activities, a storm was brewing, which Frederick didn't see until it was too late. While he had not moved against him in much force since Frederick took the crown, by the summer of 1620, Frederick's nemesis, the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II, had gathered sufficient strength to move with terrible force against the rebel elector. An ultimatum had been sent to Frederick on the 1st of June 1620 to basically leave Bohemia and say sorry for everything he had done, but that expired after the 1st of June on 1620, and Frederick hadn't done really anything about it. But that meant that after this date, it became a case of anything goes. Frederick's lands in the Upper and Lower Palatinates, as well as Bohemia, of course, were now up for grabs. 
To Frederick's chagrin and shock, Ferdinand sought to reinforce this idea that anything Frederick had could now belong to anyone else, as the emperor moved to pay off his allies for their hard work in winning the war for him. As a result of his strategy of getting as many allies on side as he could, though, Emperor Ferdinand effectively guaranteed that the war would escalate and that it would widen, and, more importantly, that the Thirty Years' War would actually result from these events, because this war wouldn't end in the Battle of White Mountain. Interestingly enough, it's nearly exactly 400 years to the day that the Battle of White Mountain happened, the 8th of November, 1620. So by the time this episode comes out, you may well be in a position to mark this occasion. I'm not exactly sure how you would do that, but hey, the more you know. Without any further ado, let's get into it, as I take you to summer 1620. Noble, dear cousin and elector, to continue our well-intentioned and highly necessary correspondence about the disorder, unrest and disobedience in Bohemia and subsequently in the Kingdom of Hungary, we do not want to conceal from you that Bethlen Gabor and Count Thurn, together with their infantry and cavalry, advanced again towards the capital city Vienna over the last few weeks, and immediately the day after our return from our Duchy of Styria, having robbed, plundered, ransomed the poor subjects without respect to their person on both sides of the Danube, similarly exercised such great mischief and unchristian tyranny that has scarcely been heard of. A few days ago the enemy began his retreat, but not before the Hungarians had devastated, plundered and burned everything where they had been quartered and, it is said, stripped the people to their last threads, ruined, cut them down and dragged away numerous young lads of 12 to 16 years old and so ill-treated pregnant women and other women that many of them were found dead everywhere on the roads. They pulled ropes around the men's necks so tight that their eyes popped out of their heads. Indeed, this enemy has behaved so terribly everywhere that one can almost not remember whether such tyranny was ever heard of from the Turks. By such means and with such allies, Count Thurin thinks he can save evangelical liberty. These were the words of Emperor Ferdinand II written on the 5th of December 1619, in a letter to the elector of Saxony, John George. As the Holy Roman Empire's foremost Protestant potentate, John George was trapped between a rock and a hard place after Frederick's acceptance of the Bohemian crown. Concerned for the interests and liberties of the empire's Protestants, John George was also anxious to ensure that a religious war didn't erupt, and he seemed to believe that by following the more cautious path, he could save his lands and countrymen from its worst excesses. This caution and deference to imperial authority were traits ingrained in John George's character, but they were glaringly absent from his ancestors, those more rebellious Saxon electors of yore. In the previous century, during the run-up to the 1555 Peace of Augsburg and the conflict known as the Schmalkaldic War, the electors of Saxony played a pivotal role in the fight for Protestant Germans against the Catholic Habsburg oppression. Ever since the hammering of Luther's theses to the church door, the empire had been set alight with religious divisions. In some portions of Germany, the Netherlands and England, the reformed faith spread and adopted different forms, and Luther's teachings had an important impact on Bohemia's religious development as well. Frederick III of Saxony was one such ancestor of John George's, who sided quickly with Luther, supporting and defending him against Habsburg attacks. 
Frederick III of Saxony, known to most as Frederick the Wise, died in 1525, with much of his country still under the influence of Catholicism. The electoral title of Saxony passed to Frederick's brother John, and for the next few years, John of Saxony was to transform this electorate by fulfilling Luther's vision for a new church and solidifying the break with Rome. According to the German historian Leopold von Ranke, John of Saxony was full of that moral earnestness which gives weight and dignity to simplicity of character, adding that John of Saxony was by nature retiring, peaceful, unpretending, but he was raised to such a pitch of resolution and energy by the greatness of his purposes that he showed himself fully equal to their accomplishment. When justice and religion were on his side, he knew not hesitation. We know of no prince to whom a larger portion of the merit of the establishment of the Protestant Church can justly be ascribed. This is Leopold von Ranke's way of saying that John of Saxony effectively recast Saxony as the Protestant bulwark of the empire, in the process presenting Saxon resistance and Protestant resistance to the Emperor Charles V as a divinely ordained quest. Saxony's place in this quest for resistance against the Emperor's mission to return all Germans to the Catholic Church changed as Martin Luther's views on violence and opposition changed with them. John of Saxony was highly active during the Diet of Augsburg, which established the primary confession of the Lutheran Creed under the Augsburg Confession in June 1530. In 1532, having helped to establish Lutheranism's main principles and clearly distinguishing their faith from the predominant Catholic creed, John of Saxony died, and he was succeeded by his son, John Frederick. Several years after this, in 1546, religious war broke out again in the empire, with the eruption of conflict between the Emperor Charles V and the Smalkaldic League, a union of Protestant German princes bound together in the name of their religious liberties. Arguably the most important leader of this league was, yes, surprise, surprise, the elector of Saxony, John Frederick. The war itself did not last long, but its impact and the opportunities it provided for foreign powers to get involved in Germany were both considerable. As Protestant militias poured into Habsburg or majority Catholic lands, calls went out for Protestant preachers to follow the soldiers and to convert one's fellow German to the Reformed faith. Protestant councillors believed that this conversion process complemented the war effort against the Emperor, and it was emphasised that true believers must first and foremost consider God's word and honour, and let God's word be preached. Such a thing should not be delayed until after the war, for if one undertakes the Christian work of improving the corrupted churches of these poor subjects now, God will grant us victory more quickly and allow the newly won Christians to remain with us. As we said, though, this war wouldn't last long in spite of these ambitious goals. In April 1547, during arguably the most important pitched battle of the 16th century, the Protestant princes of the Schmalkaldic League were effectively destroyed in the Battle of Muehlberg. Following this triumph, Emperor Charles V issued what was called the Augsburg Interim, and one historian noted on this device, The Augsburg Interim, issued at the command of Emperor Charles V, was meant to bring the Protestants one step closer to Catholic orthodoxy. It combines a Lutheran-influenced doctrine of justification with a Catholic order of liturgy and justifies this manoeuvre by appealing to the unity of the Empire. Most people haven't heard of the Augsburg Interim, 
but it is seen by some as a stepping stone towards the more famous Peace of Augsburg in 1555, which we've mentioned loads of times by this point, and which was a critically important agreement because it granted parity to the two creeds of Protestantism and Catholicism. Another aspect of this story deserves emphasis for the sake of our narrative. Just in case you were wondering where we were going with all this backstory, it's all to lead up to the actual purpose of this story, which is to talk about John George of Saxony, our elector of Saxony, for the majority of the Thirty Years' War. But back to the 1540s, and during the Battle of Muehlberg, John Frederick of Saxony was captured after his forces were destroyed. Slashed across the face and imprisoned at Charles V's orders, John Frederick, as one of the most renowned leaders of anti-Habsburg Protestant opposition, was forced to sign the capitulation of Wittenberg, whereby he abdicated as Elector of Saxony, and on the Emperor's instructions, his lands were passed to his cousin, Maurice. This transfer of lands and title from one Elector to his cousin at a Habsburg Emperor's orders was to receive its eerily similar encore in the early phase of the Thirty Years' War. And now we're back to the present day. In spring 1620, Frederick V, Elector Palatine, couldn't have known that this fate awaited him, and he would never sign any equivalent of the capitulation which John Frederick of Saxony had signed. Yet, thanks to a secret agreement between the Emperor Ferdinand and Maximilian, the Duke of Bavaria, this transfer would take place. Frederick would have his lands, the Upper Palatinate, pried from his hands and merged into Bavaria's duchy. In addition, in perhaps the most striking parallel of all, Frederick V would see his electoral title transferred to Maximilian of Bavaria, a man who was, much like Maurice of Saxony had been to John Frederick of Saxony, his cousin. The more observant of readers will note that by the late 1500s, the Saxon House of Wetten was gradually replaced by the Palatine House of Wittelsbach as the most important Protestant opposing force. The behaviour of Charles V when dealing with his Protestant princely subjects was upheld as evidence of his ambition to tear asunder all that Luther had achieved. In the minds of the Palatine Court in 1620, the current Emperor Ferdinand II wasn't much better. Curiously detached from this latest threat to Protestant durability and the continuance of Luther's work was the Saxon elector, whose ancestors had fought tooth and nail against the Emperor. Surely, after all his courageous and noble electors of Saxony, all these ancestors of his and what they had been through, John George would surely strive to emulate their example, wouldn't he? It was to Frederick's dismay that John George didn't take up this mantle, since he commanded great respect within the more moderate Lutheran circles of Germany. In addition, it was to Frederick's utter disgust and bitterness that, far from remaining aloof, John George of Saxony disgraced his ancestors by making a deal with the emperor, invading the kingdom of Bohemia and taking the province of Lusatia out of naked self-interest. John George of Saxony really was one of the Thirty Years' War's most fascinating characters because he was one of the few individuals to live through its entire duration. From 1611 to 1656, an incredible run of many, many decades, John George ruled over Saxony from its capital in Dresden and was forced to make some difficult decisions as the fortunes of war changed and Saxony's allies changed with them. While his decisions to seize the province of Lusatia following a deal with Emperor Ferdinand, 
to join the Swedish invaders when his lands were placed under threat in 1630, and then to rejoin the Habsburg camp once the Swedes had been routed in 1634, all stick out as somewhat ignoble and opportunistic. It was this very detachment that distinguished this new elector of Saxony. By all accounts, John George of Saxony was a lazy person, a passionate hunter, a good-humoured individual, and perhaps most infamously of all, a very, very heavy drinker. His elder brother, Christian II, had ruled Saxony for 20 years, but Christian II's health had deteriorated as the size of his beer belly increased. Once, when taking part in a tournament and clad in full armour, Christian dismounted from his horse, and since it was the height of summer, he took a long drink of cold beer to cool himself down. Following this act, Christian was struck by a massive heart attack, and he died soon afterwards. He was just 28 years old. With Christian II dead, the younger brother, John George, would have to replace him as the Saxon elector, and so John George took up his brother's titles and responsibilities in 1611. When he assumed his inheritance, there was little indication that John George's health or habits would grant him a better fate than his late elder brother. And yet he would rule for 45 years as the elector of Saxony, during the most important period of that electorate's life cycle since the religious wars of the previous century. C.V. Wedgwood tells us that John George was a blonde, broad, square-faced man with a florid complexion. He wore his beard in the native fashion, clipped his hair and understood not a word of French. Wedgwood also lampooned John George for his laziness and idleness during these years, not to mention his drunkenness, which, although not a chronic problem, was still enough to arouse remarks from foreign dignitaries. He began to become somewhat heated with wine, said one contemporary. He seemed to me very drunk, said another. This, of course, made diplomacy difficult, and John George largely deferred to his counsel when he was not listening to the advice of his passionately anti-Calvinist confessor, who had been named the Saxon Pope and New Judas by Calvinists in return. In a change of pace, though, the historian Friedrich Schiller attempted to paint John George's action in a more positive light by blaming the emperor's false promises and scheming for ruining the elector's reputation. Schiller wrote, His contemporaries accused him of forsaking the Protestant cause in the very midst of the storm, of preferring the aggrandizement of his house, the emancipation of his country, of exposing the whole evangelical or Lutheran church of Germany to ruin, rather than raise an arm in defense of the reformed or Calvinists, of injuring the common cause by his suspicious friendship more seriously than the open enmity of his avowed opponents. But it would have been well if his advisers had imitated the wise policy of the elector, if, despite of the prudent policy, the Saxon, like all others, groaned at the cruelties which marked the emperor's progress, if all Germany was a witness how Ferdinand deceived his confederates and trifled with his engagements, if even the elector himself at last perceived this, the more shame to the emperor who could so basely betray such implicit confidence. Yet, at the same time, it would be wrong to absolve John George of Saxony for what followed, since he was very much complicit in what happened next. Much like Maximilian of Bavaria had made his deal with the emperor, John George of Saxony sought also to make his. If he would invade from the north and into the Bohemian Kingdom's province of Lusatia, 
he would be allowed to keep it once the fighting stopped. Yet again, Ferdinand was using land as payment in lieu, and yet again, he gained a committed, if self-interested, ally because of it. With armies from the Catholic League in the south of Germany under Maximilian of Bavaria, and from the north under John George of Saxony, all en route, Frederick's strategic position in Bohemia looked fragile indeed, but it was about to get worse. On the 9th of May 1620, just over a week since Ferdinand had issued an ultimatum to Frederick to vacate the Bohemian lands and surrender the Bohemian crown, the government of Philip III of Spain sanctioned the dispatch of an army to take part in the fighting once the ultimatum expired on the 1st of June. The destination of this professional Spanish army wasn't Bohemia, but Frederick's homeland in the lower Palatinate along the Rhine. We're going to talk about Spanish intervention in a bit, but first I want to make you aware of two very important points. The first is that if you would like to get merchandise, specifically t-shirts, hoodies, that kind of thing, and if you would like them actually delivered to you in a timely fashion, then good news. When Diplomacy Fails has recently joined up with Tee Public, and you will be very happy to know that we have some really good designs on there. If you're a fan of Bismarck, then that's good news for you, because we have two of Bismarck's best t-shirts on there. One t-shirt says, Make History, with Bismarck staring defiantly into the background. Another one says, I have beaten them all, with Bismarck also staring defiantly at you. That guy was quite a defying character, as I'm sure you'll agree. But he also makes some pretty good t-shirts. You can find the classic When Diplomacy Fails logo t-shirt there as well. And in the future, I'll be adding more to this long list. The great thing about Tee Public is that if you like a design enough, you can pretty much put it on anything, from a phone case to a mask, very appropriate for the moment, but also laptop bags, tote bags, jumpers, t-shirts, those long-sleeved t-shirts, I don't know anyone who wears those, but you can get them if you want them. That's the great thing about Tee Public. it takes all the pressure off me and ensures that you get the quality products delivered straight to you. And I can assure you, they are quality, because one of the things I got to do was get two samples. So I picked my two favourite t-shirts, and if you want to see me emblazoned in them, check on our social medias, and if you look far back enough, you'll find me there. These t-shirts are really comfortable and really well made. The designs do not fade in the wash, and they don't feel stuck or tacked on cheaply like some other t-shirt companies might produce. Public do a great job and I'm very happy to be with them so make sure you click on the link in the description below or just search Public when diplomacy fails I'm sure you'll find us there. There is some issues for making sure you click on the correct link because it gets me more commission but either way if you buy my stuff I get money for it so please do head on over to Public whenever you get the chance or whenever you're interested in getting something for you or anyone else. After all as I'm sure you're aware Christmas is approaching. The other thing I have to let you know is a familiar point. We are on Patreon and we're producing Poland is Not Yet Lost, an examination of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 18th century. If you'd like to listen to a story which follows on in a way from what we're doing here but isn't quite connected to it, or if you'd just like to learn more about Poland in general, all you have to do is pledge $5 a month to our Patreon. And in return you'll get that, plus other series we've done in the past, which includes The Suez Crisis. So if you're interested in looking at a story where Britain pretty much got owned after following a really poorly advised policy, then head on over to that. And hey, you might even notice some similarities with the current day British government. 
Hashtag controversy. In any case, that's just what I wanted to make you guys aware of. We're on TeePublic and we're on Patreon. So if you want to support this show in a monetary sense, make sure you head on over there. If you want to support us but not give any money, then all you have to do is follow us on Facebook or Twitter or in the Facebook group. The Facebook group in particular is doing really well and there's some great conversations going on there as well as some great memes. It's a great place to meet like-minded history friends and talk about the latest episode or just history in general. All that stuff is pretty easy to find. So let's get back to the story and let's get back to particularly the Spanish element of this story. Spanish intervention in Frederick's rebellion against his emperor had been escalating since late 1618, when a governmental change of sorts in Madrid took place. Although King Philip III of Spain possessed absolute power, the importance of the favourite in Spanish politics had not diminished, and since Philip could not be in several places at once, it was often necessary to delegate and lean on one's advisors and administrators. One such individual was Balthazar de Zaniga, who effectively controlled Spanish foreign and domestic policy from 1618 until his death in 1622. At the core of Zaniga's policy was the notion that the Spanish Habsburgs must support their Austrian cousins, and this enabled Zaniga to leave his most important imprint upon Spain, involvement within the Holy Roman Empire, and the Thirty Years' War. In addition, waiting in the wings was Zaniga's nephew, a man who would take up the reins of Spanish government, who you may have heard of. His name was Count Olivares, and he would come to the scene after 1623. Spanish involvement in Ferdinand's business had been blatant, consistent, and encouraged. When the emperor had met with the Duke of Bavaria in early October 1619, Count Onate, the Spanish dignitary responsible for dividing the two Habsburg branches with the Onate Treaty of two years before, accompanied the emperor. While in the presence of the emperor and his ally, Maximilian of Bavaria, Count Onate was under pressure to deliver. Unless Spain intervened in some force in the empire, it was unlikely that many Catholic German princes would act. To demonstrate his seriousness, Onate acted promptly and without Madrid's permission. He authorised the immediate dispatch of 1,000 cavalry from the Spanish Netherlands to join the Catholic League. He moved Spanish soldiers from Italy to Austria for its defence, and most controversially, he promised the timely intervention in the struggle between the emperor and elector by invading Frederick's lower Palatinate along the Rhine, thus cutting Frederick off from his home base. Of no small interest to Count Onate was the fact that, with the Rhine occupied and secure, pursuing the continuation of the war against the Dutch, Spain's foremost enemy at the time, would be made that much easier once the Twelve Years' Truce expired in April 1621. Count Onate didn't stop there, though. We know that it was at this meeting on the 8th of October 1619 that the idea for transferring Frederick's lands and electoral title to his cousin, Maximilian of Bavaria, was first developed and agreed to. But Geoffrey Parker claimed that it was Count Onate who imagined this scheme. While meeting with the Emperor in private, Onate supposedly devised the explosively controversial plan on the basis that it would spur Maximilian on, but that it was still quite unlikely that Frederick's forces would be sufficiently weak to permit the Duke of Bavaria to achieve all that was planned. Based on this absurd gamble, Onate then proceeded to stack the deck against Frederick further by devising the means through which Spanish soldiers could march against the Elector Palatine. Concerns about the other Protestant powers were raised, 
with Saxony and the Evangelical Union proving to be matters for contention. Both of these questions would have to be resolved, all agreed here, before the war against the Elector Palatine could be properly and enthusiastically waged. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks to these deals made by the Emperor, substantial forces from the Catholic League, from Spain and from Saxony, were all en route to defend or attack by summer 1620. Indeed, Frederick's position was hopeless by the time the ultimatum had expired on the 1st of June 1620. Its expiration had plainly been considered a foregone conclusion in Ferdinand's court. Had Frederick capitulated as John Frederick of Saxony had done in 1547, it would have placed the Emperor in something of a terrible bind. Ferdinand had banked on Frederick's refusal to make peace, and predictably, the Elector Palatine did not disappoint. Compounding Frederick's bad fortune, on the 3rd of July 1620, the Treaty of Ulm was signed. This agreement effectively neutered what remained of the Evangelical Union, and its members resolved to provide no aid to the beleaguered Elector Palatine in return for clemency from their emperor and a vow of neutrality. These little nuggets they happily took, perhaps unwilling to believe that their emperor would go any further than the mere defeat of their former palatine commander. With this loose end of the Evangelical Union tied up, thanks to the diplomatic intervention of Anglo-French mediators no less, and more on that later, Frederick's regime was doomed. The Treaty of Ulm proved to be the final signal. On the 24th of July, the Catholic League army of 25,000 men, commanded by Count Tilly, invaded the lands of the rebellious Austrian estates, which had pledged themselves as allies to the Bohemians the previous summer. A few weeks later, the Spanish made their move, and an army of 22,000 veterans from the Dutch War, led by their renowned commander Ambrogio Spignola, marched into the lower Palatinate along the Rhine. Within six months, much of the Palatinate was in their hands, and an incredible windfall of more than 30 towns capitulated, rather than face the expected onslaught. 
Frederick was far away in his detached Bohemian kingdom, and he had no remedy for his people's bitter plight. While he retained a Bohemian Confederate army of roughly 26,000, this force was demoralised, and had no doubt been provided with whispers from the neighbouring lands about how desperate their position had become. The promised aid had not arrived. Frederick, their king, had not provided the aid and support which his connections had promised. The Dutch had determined to protect themselves rather than risk anything for the Bohemians. The Evangelical Union had paralysed itself rather than face the music, and Frederick's own father-in-law, the King of England, had elected to undermine his son-in-law and daughter by reducing what little allies he had left rather than making any effort to help him. The prognosis was certainly not good. Limited displays of support from other powers had done much to add to the sense of impending doom in Prague. Gustavus Adolphus, the King of Sweden, recognised Frederick as Bohemia's king and initially welcomed the prospect of an alliance with both Frederick's properties and the Evangelical Union. However, after travelling incognito through Germany for a few months, the king returned home to Stockholm once his mission, the wooing of the sister of the Elector of Brandenburg, was completed. Then, Gustavus was too occupied with his on-again, off-again war with his cousin, the King of Poland, but at the same time, Gustavus did provide Frederick with a conation of eight artillery pieces and a cache of ammunition. The King of Denmark, Christian IV, proved equally non-committal. Since Christian was the uncle of Frederick's wife, Elizabeth, it was hoped that this connection would bear fruit. The Danish king had offered to send 4,000 soldiers to Frederick's defence in the past, but the opposition from his council consistently hampered these plans. He would loan Frederick 100,000 talers, money which he would not get back, but Christian provided little else. The Scandinavian cards now being spent, Frederick also turned to the Venetians, who also proved themselves full of warm words, but no desire to entangle themselves in the empire's conflicts. Understandably, I think we can all agree. Anticipating later developments, Venice did commit to preventing any Habsburg soldiers from passing through its lands or the mountain passes that it controlled. With these approaches having failed, Frederick, undaunted, turned his attention to that looming beast in the east, the Ottoman Empire. While apparently an ill-fitting choice for an ally, the Turks fulfilled the age-old principle of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Their representatives informed Frederick that a massive invasion of 400,000 men was planned soon enough to teach the King of Poland a lesson for his invasion of Transylvania in November 1619. In April 1620, Frederick's envoy had led a personal audience with the Sultan, and in July of that year, a Sultan's envoy arrived in Prague and asked to be shown where the defenestration had occurred. Peter H. Wilson presents what happened next with an undercurrent of shame, noting that Frederick agreed to make Bohemia a tributary state of the Ottoman Empire. Yet, the practice of paying tribute to the Ottoman Empire had only been abandoned by the Habsburgs, with the conclusion of the Long Turkish War in 1606. It didn't mean that Frederick was the vassal king of the Turks just because he was paying them money. What it meant was that Frederick paid money to the Sultan in return for the Sultan's pledges for assistance. Of course, though, while we can look at it as something of a realistic policy, the entire agreement was terribly controversial and damaging to Frederick's reputation, especially with the repeated references to the threat posed by the Turks from both sides. It was not a wise agreement to make, but Frederick was desperate. He had been abandoned by all of his allies by the midsummer of 1620, 
The Sultan's terms were also far better than many of Frederick's European peers, and the Ottomans possessed a strategic position along the Habsburg border, which he would have been foolish not to exploit, as his enemies were soon to exploit his weaknesses. Still, when news did emerge of his deals with the heathen Turk, this was all too easily accepted as evidence of the Winter King's unfitness for rule and his rampant dishonesty. His enemies made much out of this controversy, much as Frederick himself would do once the unconstitutional deals between Ferdinand and Maximilian were discovered. What followed has been well documented by other historians. On the 8th of November, 1620, nearly 400 years ago to the day that I'm recording this right now, after facing interventions and invasions from all sides, the remnants of Frederick's bohemian Palatine Confederate army led jointly by Count Turn and Christian of Anhalt, were routed by the forces under the Catholic League. It was all over in less than three hours. 33,000 men under Frederick's optimistic banners were easily trounced by the confident and well-paid 55,000 men that faced them. While Frederick's forces had dug in, they could not withstand the barges and professionalism of the League soldiers, let alone the numbers, and morale had been low for months, thanks to troubling rumours and a lack of pay. The triumph was decisive, not for the numbers killed, but for the great flight which began in the Bohemian army. Since he had not been expecting a battle at the time, Frederick was taken unawares, just as his regime in Bohemia had collapsed. Entertaining English ambassadors at one point in the Hradshin Castle, which had now become a noted landmark in Prague after hosting the defenestration, Frederick was drawn to the commotion taking place outside the city limits. Riding out to where his army was camped, the stream of soldiers towards the city, most of them in a blind panic, told him all he needed to know. Frederick moved to secure his family, but so quick had the enemy arrived, defeated his army and taken control of the field, that a panic set in during the evacuation. A great amount of useful and incriminating material was left behind, including Queen Elizabeth's jewels and the damning correspondence between Frederick and the enemies of the Habsburgs. After the battle, Christian of Anhalt would write an extensive, detailed account of the defeat at White Mountain, and he attempted to explain to his master, Frederick, where it had all gone wrong. He concluded... Your Majesty will understand from this account the real reasons for our defeat, and will also understand that the defeat wasn't caused by the enemy's valour, but by their good fortune and the divine help they received. Surely, God wanted to punish us for our sins, mostly because of the awful treatment and bad pay bestowed on our soldiers. Seeing that the estates of Bohemia wanted their ruin and disbandment, those soldiers were reduced to extreme despair and bad behaviour, such that no chief or officer could order them to fight any more. For me to start a proper explanation of those matters, their faults and imperfections, I would need reams of paper to do them justice. Your Majesty knew about this, even if you couldn't remedy the matter in any way possible to you. However, for this generation of people, all was in vain, as the unhappy outcome proved. The Bohemian Revolt was over, with Prague captured by the forces of their formerly deposed king, a new process began, fleeing the country or seeking Ferdinand's mercy, or taking advantage of the fire sale of land which was about to follow, as exiled, murdered, or otherwise absent lords had their lands seized and redistributed. Further afield, a new chapter was also beginning for Frederick V. This was to be the long, often lonely, and dispiriting road of resistance to the emperor, 
His was to be the thankless, often unwelcome cause, which most would rather ignore and return to their lives rather than aid and abet. In the years that followed, Frederick's mission would change, as would his allies, but his presence in the anti-Hausberg camp and his limitless, apparently limitless, passion for creating coalitions and sending them Ferdinand's way ensured that the sun did not set on the Winter King just yet. So how does one account for the whirlwind series of events which culminated in the Battle of White Mountain on the 8th of November 1620? There is, as we have no doubt learned, no easy or straightforward way to analyse and present all that occurred from the moment the Bohemians defenestrated their Habsburg regions to the moment when their country appeared to be laid helpless and naked at the feet of so many enemies. A question which frequently arises when examining these events revolves around the issue of responsibility. Was Frederick V, the Elector Palatine, responsible for what happened next? Was he responsible for the ravages and destruction of the Thirty Years' War? We must establish, first and foremost, the important clarification. Frederick had no intentions of initiating the Thirty Years' War. He had acted opportunistically during his rival's time of misfortune, and he had, perhaps, acted foolishly, since he had also underestimated the wrath of the Habsburgs, which would follow that decision. He had also naively assumed that the pledges of his allies were all sincere, and that the English, Dutch, French, Danish, Swedish, Venetian, Savoyard, and Evangelical Union's promises, made in the past or in recent times, were enough to base one's hopes upon. Frederick also must have been motivated by the apparently desperate position of the Habsburgs when he accepted the crown in late September 1619. By that point, Hungarian rebels were marching in force through Habsburg possessions and were poised to threaten Vienna. It seemed as though Ferdinand had no answer for these challenges. It certainly seemed this way to Frederick, shrewdly gambling that he would never have a better opportunity to capitalise upon Habsburg weaknesses, Frederick took an immense risk which he believed was worth it, but which in the end proved disastrous. Next, we must accept that Frederick, rightly or wrongly, upheld to the end that the Habsburgs were a malignant and unwelcome force in the empire, and that they did not belong in the imperial office. Frederick was persuaded from an early age, as his father had been before him, that the Habsburgs wished to eradicate Calvinism, Lutheranism, and all forms of religious difference from the empire, and to bend the German princes to their will. He also believed, correctly as it turned out, that Ferdinand would act just as Charles V had acted, and make unconstitutional deals to get what he wanted, reshaping the empire's makeup as he saw fit. Frederick had seen the manifestation of these malignant designs in the years before, thanks to the unfortunately crude and provocative Habsburg implementation of religious policy. One could of course argue that the Habsburgs only abided by the tenets of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg when they fought tenaciously for their creed in spite of what the populace believed. But to Frederick, this was evidence of Habsburg intolerance and excess. Ferdinand of Styria, whose notorious transformation of the largely Protestant population of his duchy was common knowledge in Europe, was upheld by Frederick to be the most egregious offender of all. That Frederick was wrong, probably, to accept the Bohemian crown must be tempered with the fact that Frederick was proved right where the Habsburg excesses were concerned. Even before Frederick's fall, Ferdinand had made use of unconstitutional deals of a dubious legality to secure his position. While these agreements proved effective and said as much about Ferdinand as they did about the individuals he made the agreements with, they would enable Frederick in time 
to mobilize anti-Habsburg opinion against Ferdinand and his Habsburg family, and they would fill Frederick with a burning desire to right the wrongs which had been done to him and which would be done to his countrymen. Frederick's rashness, naivety and opportunism may well have provided the spark which caused the Thirty Years' War to erupt, but, thanks to Ferdinand's equally unfortunate character traits, this war would not end at White Mountain and would last another 28 years. In the next episode, we'll look at how Frederick fared in the aftermath of the Battle of White Mountain, as the Habsburg's allies sought to cash in on the deals they had made, and Frederick's lands were pulled apart in the process. I hope you'll join me for that, my lovely history friends and patrons, but until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 22 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show. Stay safe, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.